let's uh, begin with a couple of Q&As. I had a number of questions, uh, Christopher, for you, but I would love uh, if we could once again just begin our conversation with a word of prayer. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you, God, that you sent Christ. And then as we enter into a season in the next six weeks of celebrating that event, I just want to ask and pray that even today we'd be cognizant and aware of the fact that you bring hope, you bring life, we can be born again. You make us new, and you are in the process of making us new every day. I pray that if uh, any of the students or families here in this auditorium this morning feel hopeless, feel lost, feel confused, spiritually, intellectually, and with their desires, I'd ask and pray you'd bring some clarity through um, Christopher's words this morning, your spirit would work to bring healing in all of us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that works deep in the core of our souls to transform, change us, bring light and life. I pray that would happen as a result uh, of our conversation this morning. In the name and the authority of Christ, amen. So Christopher, first question I think that um, is the, probably the most prominent one is uh, whether or not you still struggle with uh, same-sex attraction. And uh, actually a um, counterpart to that, sister part to that question that a lot of people asked was also just in general, if so or if not, what have you found to be the most effective thing in just countering and fighting sexual sins and uh, struggles? It's always a great question that, that I'm almost always asked because, you know, after giving my testimony, people want to know either... You know, people ask, well, still, are you still gay or do you still have these same-sex attractions? Um, I, whenever I, I, I answer something, I want to first define our terminology because I think we can be using same words, but if we're using different definitions, then it can cause a lot of confusion. And I think that's particularly true on this, on this topic of sexuality. So attraction is very interesting because we don't find it in, in the Bible. Well, there's similar words that we find. So when people talk about attractions, it's hard to exactly know what you're talking about, especially if you're talking about same-sex attractions. You have some people say it's not sin. You have some people say that it is sin. Well, I think the, one of the main reasons why there's disagreement is because we're defining attraction differently. So I decided, and I realized that it's best to, if we're going to talk about the morality of something, and we're talking about the biblical morality of something, of a particular thing that we don't find that word in the Bible, well, let's use some biblical terminology. Since we're trying to figure out biblical morality, whether it's right or wrong or not, whether I'm kind of, you know, or if I'm struggling with it or not, um, using biblical categories definitely helps us. And the Bible doesn't use the word attraction, but it uses words like temptations, desires, and lust. Well, temptation, Jesus was tempted in every way, the writer of Hebrew writes, but he was without sin. Jesus was tempted for 40 days by Satan, but he didn't sin. So temptation, the Bible teaches us, is not sin per se. It's not sin in and of itself. However, it quickly leads to sin. So our calling isn't that we won't be tempted, but our calling is that we won't give in to temptation. There's, there's a big difference. So everyone will be tempted. That's a fact. Not just me, not just you. Everyone will be tempted. But our calling is to, our command is to not give in to temptation. So that's important to think about before I answer this question. But then desire then helps us to realize that, well, we all have desires, but our desires right or desires wrong? Well, it depends on what we're desiring. Uh, you might think, well, lust, lust is obviously wrong, 
And so we don't want our desire to turn into lust. Well, the problem with that statement that most people think we don't want our desires to turn into lust, the problem with that statement is the same word that we translate desire in the Greek New Testament, epithumia, is the same word that we translate into, uh, that we can translate into lust. So it's the same word. We translate it as, in English, either desire or lust, depending on context. So it's not that desire turns into lust wrongly or desire is lust. So that's important for us to think. So, so same-sex so same temptations are sinful, uh, are not sinful, I'm sorry, but it can lead to sin. Same-sex desires are sinful. So am I tempted? Well, if we realize that we all are tempted, that means we're all going to be tempted to sin. Our calling is not to give into temptation. If God removes this, which I think he can, God can do anything. If he rose dead to life, he can, he can obviously do that, take that temptation away from me. But I will still be tempted with something because I still have a sin nature. Like it always comes down to that. We can't understand human sexuality apart from understanding theological anthropology. We're created in the image of God that we, and we also have a sin nature. So as long as we have a sin nature, we still will be tempted. And uh, we have that propensity to sin. So I uh, may still have these temptations, but they're not the same as they were 10 years ago or even 20 years ago when I came to Christ. The promise of Christ and the Holy Spirit abiding in us and dwelling in us is that as we are on the road toward sanctification and, and, and you know, progressive sanctification, that uh, the eradication of temptation is not a promise, but definitely God walks us through our trials, through our temptations, and from just an experiential perspective, from my experience, it has gotten easier over time, that it's gotten less intense and less frequent. But I would say the, the important thing for, for how I've battled wrestling with being tempted with sin is, first of all, I need... I look at the example of Jesus when he was tempted by Satan for 40 days in the Gospels. It tells us that, that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. And how did he fight the temptation? He fought it with the Word of God, and particularly from Deuteronomy, which many of us, we don't do our, our devotions out of Deuteronomy. Jesus Christ, he fought Satan with quotes right from Deuteronomy. And uh, so we need to be renewing our mind, as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, too. Don't be conformed to this world, but by renewing our mind. And one of the ways that we renew our mind is by saturating with the Word of God. So we need to be make sure that we are practicing uh, the, our spiritual disciplines, not only just in the Word of God. Uh, a great book that I read, uh, actually someone from the Twin Cities wrote it, David Mathis. He's the executive director of Desiring God Ministries and was uh, the assistant for John Piper. But he wrote this book called Habits of Grace, which was phenomenal. Just came out three months ago, and it kind of, I would strongly suggest that if any of you guys are interested in, in just spiritual disciplines and how to grow in God, putting yourself in the path of God's grace. That was very helpful for me. So it's talking about spiritual renewal, daily renewal, revival in my own life. But second, we need to be in community. And, uh, and I don't mean just, just friendship, because I think a lot of times, uh, younger generation, we talk about having friends, which is good. But friendship can be focused inward. What we need more is family, and particularly spiritual family, which is the body of Christ. So the local church always has to be an important component of sanctification and, and, and discipleship. And unfortunately, when we talk about sexual brokenness, uh, for the past several years, we often leave the local church out of that equation, whether we're talking about strictly just uh, 
support groups and therapy, which is helpful, but when, this, when the local church is an afterthought, I think that's not helpful. Um, or we just focus upon you know, covenant and friendships apart from the body of Christ that can also be harmful. So we really need to uh, be working on our own spiritual renewal, but also doing that in the, in the family of God. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. A similar question, I think at some level you maybe have answered this in your original talk and in some things that you've said, but one of the pervasive questions from um, this community that's emerged is obviously can you be, um, be a Christian, still be gay, can a gay person go to heaven? I mean, those kinds of questions. Uh, and I think you have at some level answered that, but I think just because it emerged so much, just for the sake of clarification, yeah. how would you respond? Well, again, I'm, I'm going to go to how do we define our terms? Mm -hmm. How do we define gay? And how do we define Christian? So gay has, I think, certainly from the, uh, the most obvious definition would be an individual who has attraction toward the same sex. And, um, but we also need to realize the term gay has gone beyond just the definition or a descriptor of our attractions. It's gone to describe who we are. And... I, I didn't discuss it much here, uh, but and I think I mentioned a little bit of my testimony, but my identity and no one's identity should be, be put in their sexuality. And so I'm not even talking about the term gay, but even straight. Straight doesn't describe who we are. Gay does not describe who we are. It just doesn't. It describes how we are. It describes our desires. We, I, we, no other desire has become who we are. You can't name a single one. Uh, does, you know, our affections, our desires, our thoughts never describe who we are. They describe how we are. Actually, I don't know of any other sinful behavior that we have conflated with identity. For example, uh, lying is not who we are, but it's what we do. Uh, gossiping is not who we are, but what we do. An adulterer, that's not who they are, but what they do. And yet when it comes to sexuality, the only, you know, only you know, example that I know of where we have made our desires, our behaviors, who we are. So um, can a person be gay and a Christian? Well, again, it depends on how you define it. If you're just talking about if a person has same-sex attractions, can they still be a Christian? Well, then we have to define Christian. Yeah. Because Christian doesn't mean, according to the Word of God, someone who just goes to church. A Christian does not just mean someone who said the sinner's prayer, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so this conversion, this salvation from death to life, first of all, is something that God does in us, um, and, but it is about faith in Christ. And, but it's not just simply, well, I believe. Uh, that belief has to produce fruit, and that good fruit, as Jesus talks about, that good fruit that Jesus talks about in the Gospels is about repentance. Uh, salvation will have the good fruit of repentance, that it'll be shown in good works. Um, so that's how the Bible defines Christian. So can a person be, uh, have same-sex attraction? And again, I don't like the word attractions because that's talked about before. Can a person be tempted uh, with, you know, with same-sex desires and still be a Christian? Well, can, person, can a person be tempted with any sin and still be a Christian? Well, of course, because 
Jesus Christ himself was tempted himself, you know, and that doesn't make him any less holy. Being tempted isn't sin, but giving in to temptation is. But if a person is living in a way of unrepentant sin, then that re reveals maybe the Holy Spirit isn't abiding in that individual, right? If a person has put their faith in Christ, that means then the Holy Spirit is indwelling in them. And one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, what uh, the Holy Spirit does is to convict us of sin. And if there is no conviction of sin, that doesn't mean that we don't sin, but we the Holy Spirit would be convicting us of sin and leading us to accept the good fruit and the gift of repentance. So I would say if a person is living uh, and embracing same-sex relationships and in a same-sex relationship, can that person be Christian? Well, um, the answer is would any person... Can we say that any person is a Christian and living in unrepentant sin? And like, like David, I mean, he committed adultery, but when confronted of it, he repented of it. Uh, do Christians sin? Yes. But if the Holy Spirit is abiding in them, then the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin. So, you know, can a person be living in sin and a Christian? Well, yes, but not for long but not for long. Hmm. And, uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, we all deserve God's wrath. So, you know, are gays going to hell? Well, apart from Christ, we all are. I mean, that's, that's just the gospel. That's why we need a savior. A savior is one who saves, and he saves us from the wrath that we all deserve, that everyone deserves. I'm not just picking on, on one group of people. I'm picking on I mean, I'm not picking on. I'm just saying the word of God uh, states clearly we're children of wrath. Therefore, but God loves us, even though we're children of wrath, even though we were his enemies. And he sent his, sent his son so that we can become children of God. Hmm. One, uh, one question, not necessarily on here, but maybe goes back to some questions that I've heard in conversations with um, some people is you said there's no other desire that we sort of conflate with identity. Why do you think it is that when it comes to um, sexuality, especially um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, why is it that that tends uh, to lend itself for a lot of people to be conflated? I think there's this conflation, and you know, I, I leave that back to, and I talk about that in, in my new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, that I point it to around the mid-1800s, so this, that's a romantic period when uh, we were coming come out of industrial period and also coming out of, you know, so many centuries of the Dark Ages, you know, the medieval period where, um, and unfortunately there was, the, the religion was used more as a weapon and, and to, to, to kind of, you know, enforce people into just submission and obedience. And, and of course, that, that just isn't what God intended. But people coming out of that, and it was a rejection of not only the church at that time, which was a little messed up, but they threw the baby out with the bathwater. So not only were they throwing out the, the distorted church hierarchy of, of the church at that time, but they were also throwing out God as well, right? I mean, yes, we want to re reform the church. That's why in, in the you know, in the 1500s, there was a reformation, but then what they, what, what societies were doing, especially in Europe, were they were throwing out religion as well. I mean, they're throwing out everything, throwing out God, 
So when there's no God for time, well, there's a void. <laughs> Every single time there's a void um, that, that cannot be filled just by knowledge. So what the response to that was, because in, in response to kind of getting rid of God, they were trying to fill it with knowledge. And yet people realizing there's some futility in that when we're just trying to fill, our, you know, fill the void with knowledge. And they were realizing that, wait, but we all have emotions. We all have feelings. We all have our experiences. And that's when we have the romantic period where it's all about what you feel, what you think. Because if there is no God, then there's no purpose or meaning. There's no value to anything and even to ourselves. So we need to create our value in our own meaning. And I think to try to fill that void that was created by taking God out of that, the vacuum, what we filled that with was at first knowledge and that was not leading to any kind of contentment. So then they're trying to fill it with, well, we need to become more in tune with our emotions. Uh, and that's why, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I, when I was younger, I, I studied piano and I was a classical pianist. I mean, I'm not, I'm not professional or anything, but I love classical music. And I love the romantic period. That's one of the greatest periods of art and, and music uh, because finally people were like, they felt like they were shackled for so long that they had to keep their emotions in and finally they were able to express them. But we went to the point to kind of the other extreme where we made our emotions and our uh, experiences God. So it's basically experience reigns supreme. If you think something that's your truth, and I have no right to say that. I mean, that's, we're, we're kind of living that out today. If you, if you feel something, then that's, make that your reality. Uh, so I think that that is why when we make our feelings and our desires and our thoughts God, so it's no longer sola scriptura, right? The, uh, you guys familiar with sola scriptura, sola scriptura, the Reformation, scripture alone, it's that, that's not how they were living. It's sola experientia, so it's experience alone. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that's where that has come from. But in addition to that, we, sexuality is a very strong reality that we can't deny. It's, it's one, of the one of the most powerful uh, forces, desires that we have. But no matter how strong a desire is, I still argue that that can't be who we are. It's how we are. Um, and the world has made sexuality now equivalent to race and gender or, or sex, male or female. And uh, where, where now we see even in, in politics and rights where we see that as all equivalent, whether it's sex, whether it's, uh, whether it's um, race, whether it's sex, male or female, or sexuality, it's all the same thing. And um, so I think that's kind of part of the reason why, uh, why we're where we are today. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. One, uh, one other question uh, that is emerging quite a bit is when it comes to interacting uh, with the LGBT community, um, if they're not, I'll, I'll read this question uh, verbatim. How would you respond to the person who's not born again, uh, doesn't agree that they need to be made into a new creation? Um, another person phrased it unrepentantly, LGBT, uh, is maybe even living, um, living that out in their choices. Uh, does your argument, uh, is it linchpinned on conversion? Uh, are there arguments to be used and ways to approach the conversation if you're concerned about somebody uh, and believe that it is sin um, that wouldn't hinge on or rest on scripture? Yeah. 
you know, obviously, if, there's, if, if there is a person who doesn't know Christ, I'm not going to be using my arguments or emphasis on the Word of God because they don't accept the Word of God to be true. Um, they don't believe that there is no God. And um, so I wouldn't be using that. I, you know, so that was me. Everything that you described, that was me. That was my past. And my parents, they did not open up the Bible every time that I came home and tell me, you know, well, this is what it says in Romans 1. This is what it says in Leviticus, you know, yeah. read it, turn or burn. Um, they didn't do that. So by the way, that doesn't work. <laughs> it's not helpful. But what they did was they just lived out the gospel. They, they did not really bring up the sexuality much. I, I still, like, I mean, there's something about when people first come to Christ, I mean, when there's a radical transformation, which, which was, the, was the reality for both of my parents, there was such a radical transformation that, you know, when, when John talks about, you know, in Revelation, where Jesus says, you've lost your first love, um, that their first love was Jesus, and they just radiated Christ. So it was real. And that was offensive to me, though. You know, I mean, any, everything was offensive to me at that time. But I saw, I saw the gospel lived out. I saw the change in their life, uh, which is hard for adults in their, at that time, uh, early 50s or late 40s. I can't remember. I'm, not, um, I'm bad at math. I know that I'm Chinese, <laughs> but I know that might sound weird. Um, but uh, it's been too, too long since I've done math. I've, doing theology now. And then yeah. When you do theology, you throw math out the window. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Do you have any math teachers out there? Um, so, but they lived the gospel before they preached the gospel. And, you know, do we, I, I mean, I, I, I hear where we want to warn people from sin. Um, but we do that by, so my biggest sin was not being in the same sexual relationship. Yes, it was sin, but it wasn't my biggest sin. My biggest sin was unbelief. So you could maybe, possibly, potentially convince someone that they're living in sin and maybe even convince them to not continue in that sinful behavior. But if they don't put their faith in Christ, they're going to replace that sin with something else. And they're still going to... So let's just say you have a, maybe a, a sister who's, who's lesbian. And um, let's just say she breaks up with a girlfriend and she gets married to a man. If she has not submitted to Christ, she's still lost. So I'm looking at, yes, I want to forewarn them of sin, but that's not as important as forewarning them for the consequence of rejecting Christ. So I always want to make Christ. That doesn't mean that I'm going to keep kind of hitting them over the head with the Bible and telling them, submit, submit. Mm -hmm. um, no, that doesn't work. But I know in the back of my mind, what I want more than anything else is not that, that she would turn straight, it's not that, because even straight people go to, go to hell apart from Christ. You, you guys realize heterosexuality will not get you into heaven? You guys know that? 
Okay, take note. Only Jesus. Only a relationship with Christ. So it is not heterosexuality that will get you into heaven. Uh, but living in sin, if you're living and acting on homosexuality, that will, be, that will separate you from God. But um, so it's, we need to realize that the most important thing is that they would put their faith in Christ and because the Holy Spirit abides in them, they would be able to go and sin no more, which means that they won't be pursuing or in a same-sex relationship because they would not be sinning. You know, they wouldn't be sinning anymore. Hmm. So a uh, follow-up question to that that came up a couple times actually on the uh, Q&A, which is let's just, uh, I'll, I'll use your scenario of let's say you have a lesbian sister. Yes. Let's say she doesn't break up with um, her, um, the, the female that she's with and they are going to get married. Uh, would you attend uh, a gay lesbian wedding? You know, it's interesting because what, ten, yeah. 10 years ago that was not the reality and then I think this is, yeah. this will be the reality of pretty much everyone. Uh, we will have a friend, a distant relative, a close relative, a sibling, maybe of a mom or dad, um, maybe, you know, who's divorced or whatever, you know, if, if, you, if you're in a mixed, mixed family uh, where that becomes your reality, that your loved one, your friend is getting married in a, a same-sex marriage. Do we go or not? Well, there's, th this is an important decision to make because if it's a friend, it might be easy. Like, I mean, you might get, I mean, you guys are in high school, so you guys don't get marriage advice. That would be a little weird. Uh, but wait till college, especially if you go to Christian college. My goodness, the springtime, it's crazy. You have to, you know, <laughs> I'm telling you, I go to Moody Bridal Institute. It's kind of Ring by crazy. spring or your money back. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, MRS degree or you just failed college. Um, but, which, by the way, can I give a little, 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 little uh, commercial? How many of you guys have heard of Moody Bible Institute? How many of you guys did not know, raise your hand if you did not know, that if you're accepted to Moody Bible Institute, the Bible college, your tuition is fully paid for? Anyone did not know that? Fully paid for. Um, anyone thinking about going to ministry, would like to go into ministry, maybe go to Bible college? No one? We've really had an impact here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just shy, you know. Yeah, yeah there's, there's some. But think about it. Pray about it. If you have some questions, talk to me after, afterward. Obviously, Moody Bible Institute, there's some wonderful, great, and even here in the city, some great Christian colleges that are liberal arts. Moody is not liberal arts. Uh, we just specifically are uh, Bible college. But there's the, um, you know, at, there's this, I, I forgot where I was. I was talking about Moody Bible Institute. Uh, <laughs> commercial back on the commercial break and I can't remember where we were but talking about oh, going talking to same-sex marriage yeah, yeah it, it's going to be a part of their reality that they'll have to face yes you have to face this yeah. you know situation so mm -hmm. there, there's two more important things at stake whether you go or don't go um, does your loved one know what you believe and does your loved one know whether that you still love them or not because if you do go, it's clear you love them. I'm, 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 yeah, if, if you do go, it's clear you love them, but could it be, could be misunderstood that you, what you believe. If you don't go, it's clear what you believe, but it could be misunderstood that you love them. 
So the two can be intention. And so I was saying like, you know, if you get a lot of these wedding invites and if it's a distant friend or relative, it's easy to say, no, I, I just can't go. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to pay $300 to fly there because I don't, you know, we're friends, but I don't know you that well or whatever. So that, that can be easy. But if it's a really close relative like your sister, your brother, or maybe, you know, if you're a parent, if you're son or daughter, it's a little hard then to say, no, I can't go because it's your relative because most of the times you would go. Well, I, I think you really need to pray and fast about this. I'm not going to give an answer because I think it really depends on the situation, your relationship with them, what do they know, do they know what you believe, do they know you still love them. If you're praying and God is telling you not to go, obviously it's not God's will for two people to be in a same-sex relationship, but does presence, does that mean that it's condoning. So if you pray and God is telling you not to go, I would do definitely one thing. Do not tell this person on the phone, over the email, or over text. I would do it in person. Give that person, you know, at least that privilege, that honor to see you face to face and tell them. I think it'll go over much better if you do it that way. Um, and spend time with them for the whole weekend. Um, but the question is, does presence at a wedding mean that you're accepting it, that you're celebrating? In most situations, yes, but not always. I mean, sometimes in-laws will be at weddings. That doesn't mean that they're approving. In-laws sometimes are <laughs> disapproving, but they're still there, right? <laughs> presence doesn't always mean approving. I'm not saying then, therefore, you can go because we need to look at the Word of God. And actually, we see the Word of God really takes this, this concept of wedding and talks about it a lot. Genesis 2 begins with a wedding. Revelation 20, so the Bible begins with a wedding, the Bible ends with a wedding, the great supper of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then throughout Scripture, even we have marriage talked about as a metaphor with Jehovah as the, as the husband and this adulterous wife Israel as, as his wife. And then we have the New Testament where Jesus now is the groom and the church is the bride. So for us to trivialize something that God didn't trivialize in Scripture, I think would be difficult. Personally, I would not be able to go to the ceremony, but maybe I might go to the reception. It's a dinner. It's a free dinner. Why not, right? I mean, get food. So, <laughs> I, And I know some parents who have done that. They will not go to the ceremony, but they will go to the reception. There are things in the reception that I wouldn't, elements of the reception that I wouldn't participate in, like the toast. That would be to the couple. If, you know, I wouldn't be able to do a toast to the couple. I just wouldn't sit out. I don't like, you know, champagne anyway. Um, I would not get them one gift for the couple. I would get them two individual gifts for the two individual people that God loves. And I want to share, and I, I want to love as well. Getting one gift would be kind of for the couple. I would get two, individual, two gifts for the individuals. Get them something. Say, get them my book. You never know. They might read it. God, God <laughs> could use it, you know. I, I tell people, if you want to give this, and some people actually do want to give this book to someone that they know that, that's, that's identified as gay. I would not tell them, I have a book for you to read. You can tell them, I read this, and I would love your opinion. That's kind of like an open door that you can have this conversation yeah. later with. But So I kind of leave that open. I think there's more option than just not going at all or totally going. I think maybe you could do this. Don't go to the ceremony, but maybe to the reception hmm. as a way to sh kind of clearly say, I don't approve this, but I'm here because I love you yeah. and, and I want to be part of your life. It's good. Thank you, Christopher. One other uh, thing that has come up, I think this is an interesting question. It seems like all other sins, you can uh, in a, maybe in a measurable way see that they hurt people. Uh, there seems to be a, a reason we can argue for why God would have made it to be a sin. It seems like being gay doesn't hurt anyone. Why would God condemn it? What's the Great point? question. So I think 
today, the definition of what's right or wrong is, is harm. Uh, the Me Too movement. Um, what we, how do we define what is right or wrong when it comes to sex? How, how, anyone, how, how, in, in our culture today, what's right or wrong when it comes to sex? How, how do we determine whether something is right or wrong? Like when, when two people have sex, there needs to be consent. That's what we hear today. So consent, that's, that, oh yeah, of course we need to get consent. That's pretty black and white. Is consent really black and white? Yes or no? No. Because maybe that night she says yes, but then in the morning she said, I didn't mean that. I was forced. I mean, consent isn't always as black and white as we think. Well, harm. So why is incest wrong? It's not harming anyone. I mean, if anyone have a brother or sister? Like if both of you actually consent to it, what's wrong with it? <laughs> what's wrong with it? You're not hurting each other. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm, tr I'm, I'm trying, okay, good, good question. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Shh, shh, shh. So if they have a child, good, okay. But if I sterilize you both, which, I mean, right? I mean, if I cut your tubes, both guys, you know, snip, snip. Ladies, a little deeper snip, snip, I mean. Would that then make it right? But I mean, we, we wouldn't have, you know, the children that we would get rid of that. So, so what she brought up was, if, if, uh, you know, incest, the children, they could have mutations, et cetera, and it, that's not good. So if we don't, if we just, if they sterilize both, would that make it right then? But we, they're not harming each other, especially if they're consenting. What about idolatry? What harm is there, like Hindus, I, how, how many of you guys have Hindu friends? Are there? Uh, Buddhists, I have lots of Buddhist friends. Um, th that's their worship of idols. How are they harming people? Is, does idolatry harm people? I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking about just strictly from the physical, material harm. No. So our definition of harm, especially when it comes to God's morality, if you read the whole Bible, actually the sin that is probably mentioned the most is idolatry. And yet, from our definition of harm, there's zero harm with worshiping idols. And same thing with incest. Um, and and actually, actually, I mean, you could go down the list. Um, the Tower of Babel, what was so harmful about that? Um, eating the forbidden fruit, what's so harmful about that? So our definition of harm is our mankind's definition of right or wrong. Um, God has a quite different definition of right or wrong. But um, so because we see things with our own eyes and we define things as harm. So harm is a quite subjective, actually, definition, what is harmful. 
um, because when we look at from God's eyes, there's definitely always harm. We just don't always see it uh, because God's always seeing it also. Why is idolatry? I'm not saying that idolatry is not harmful. I'm just saying from the physical material perspective, from our eyes, it doesn't seem harmful. It is definitely harmful in a very eternal way to worship idols. We just don't see it. Um, so anyway, in the same way, when it comes to same-sex relationships, um, I'm not going to say it's not harmful, but it, it might not seem harmful, and it doesn't even seem harmful for me uh, from my eyes, from the material, physical way, but uh, we need to be sure that we're not judged, because if we're judging what is right, when we say that something is right only because of it's harmful, we then become God, and we become the arbiter of truth, and we become the judge. Uh, so this is the only book that states what is right or wrong, even though it doesn't always make sense because God sees what is truly harmful or not and right or wrong. Uh, but anyway, so that's that perspective about how it, we, at least as Christians, know that. And that's why I'm, I am pretty convinced that it is difficult. People ask, well, how do I convince someone who's gay that this is wrong apart from Scripture? I, I think apart from the mind of Christ, we're not able to see God's ways uh, apart from our own ways. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I think one, uh, I think it's um, you're probably familiar, and the name I'd throw out there too is, I, I'm sure you know him, and uh, Preston Sprinkle makes the argument too that actually some things in, uh, who is a, th a theologian and someone who's at the forefront of talking about these issues, and he also articulates, I thought it was interesting that the Bible actually in some ways commands that we do some things that are harmful. Um, in fact, says that sometimes believing in Christ will be persecuted. Yes. He sends them out two by two, and, and that doesn't go so well for some of them. Right. And uh, some people are called to missions in dangerous places, and right. that's actually quite harmful sometimes in some ways for their families. Right. I, I mean, and, and the grace, greatest example of, of harm, doing right and doing good, that caused great harm was the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. You know, Christ going to the cross. I mean, he knew uh, the harm and, uh, you know, on himself, uh, afflicted by others, but he was allowing it. Mm. Uh, so you're, you're exactly right. It's a, it's, that's a good example. So one other uh, thing, we've got time for maybe just one more uh, question here, I think, uh, possibly to you. But um, when it comes to the biblical argument, some within the LGBT community would suggest, well, actually, um, I think maybe this question came up probably more, so I should, I should default to this one, which is, um, could you speak also briefly to the issue of transgenderism, and how would you, how would you address uh, that particular issue in that community. What do you think? And what do you think Jesus would say? Yeah, we've we've yeah. lumped transgenderism along with the LGBTQIA acronym, and and especially when it comes to rights, it, it does make sense. But and especially because of the way kind of sexual when we the postmodern movement that has flowed out of Michel Foucault and his understanding that there's no binaries, uh, that their only social construct fits well with gender identity and trans, uh, and uh, sexual identity and gender identity. But from the experiential perspective, they're quite different. Sexual identity has to deal with the attractions that we have for the other. So if I have sexual or romantic desires, so, so sexuality doesn't always have to be sexual in the sense they can be romantic desires. Uh, when I have those type of desires for uh, the other, well, is that other person of the same sex or of the opposite sex, or could it be either? So, you know, we obviously call that either heterosexual, bisexual, or, or homosexual. 
and where gender identity has nothing, has, has nothing to do with my attractions for the other. It has everything to do with how I view myself. So it's a self-perception, a self-conception about myself. And particularly, do I view myself as a man? Do I understand myself to be a man or a woman? And then, is that in alignment with, or is, it, is there a discord between the sex that I was born as compared to my gender, meaning my self-perception? So sex and gender used to have the same definition, but we've kind of differentiated them to be defined differently, where sex is the, our birth at sex, or uh, gender is my psychological, how I perceive myself to be man or woman. Now, I know some of you guys have probably heard that we are assigned gender at birth. We are, we, sex is, um, it is observed. Gender is something that we come to grips with later in life. In other words, you, 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 you realize, well, you know, I feel like I'm a man st stuck in a woman's body or I feel like I'm a woman stuck in a man's body. That has to do with now the modern understanding of gender. Before, gender used to be the same as sex. Now we've kind of split them apart. Psych that's a psychological reality. Sex is a, is a biological, physical reality. So when they're in discord, we call that gender dysphoria or people will maybe identify as being transgender. Whereas the term for when they're the same People call that cisgender, C-I-S-G-E-N-D-R. Now, I don't, the reason, I don't use those terms, even though people would say I would be cisgender because my, the way I view myself, my self-conception is in, in alignment with my biological sex. But the reason why I don't like that term is because uh, gender actually only occurs in reality in our words. It doesn't occur anywhere else other than in our mind and our words. Gender is not a true physical reality that is empirical, uh, but it is only something that occurs in our mind. Sex is definitely something that is empirical. We have, uh, it's testable, it's, it's a phenotype. So what transgenderism is, actually the issue with transgenderism is not what is male or female because I think that's often what we're trying to discuss. What, you know, is male or female a social construct? Is there a third gender? Is there, you know, what, what, you know, what, what is the reality? Transgenderism, the real question here is what is true and what is real? The world is saying, if you feel something, that's your truth. If you think something about yourself, then that's your truth. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all else, Jeremiah 17:9. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which means I can't trust my heart. I can't trust my mind. That doesn't mean that I don't use my mind and my heart, but I can't trust it. That means that I can have thoughts that could be misleading. I could have feelings that could lead me astray, so I need to submit everything to Christ. And here's, here's the, the real question is when it comes to transgenderism, why is it that we have made psychology more important than biology? 
Why is it that we now uh, have, uh, have taken the science of psychology and made biology irrelevant? That it's almost, we think that the bi our biology is insignificant or untrue. That our only truth is our, our own personal psychological reality. Uh, you know, so when people say, I believe in science, great. Well, what science do you believe in? Because when it comes to transgenderism, do you believe in biology? Because you're, you don't. You believe that biology is wrong. The only one that's, and that my psychology is the only thing that's right. And I would say most psychologists realize that there's a lot of things with our psychology that, that we can't trust and that we need to uh, submit to something else and that needs to be refined. Not that, but that there are biological anom anomalies and, uh, as well, but when it comes to that, why is, I mean, that's just kind of a rhetorical question that when it comes to, but really when it comes down to it, transgenderism, the issue is what is true and what is real and I can't trust my mind. I think something and I know I need to submit it, submit it to the authority of Christ. But gender dysphoria uh, and the reality of where people have this discord is true. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's not true. It is, it is real in that people do have that real struggle. Yeah. And it is something that as a church we need to deal with uh, and recognize. But ultimately, it is, again, a result of the fall. So just as to understand human sexuality, we need to begin with, with theological anthropology. To understand gender identity, we need to begin with, uh, with theological anthropology. That we're created in the image of God, but we all have a sin nature. So this reality of gender dysphoria... Uh, isn't something that's stemming from the image of God, but it's stem, stem, stemming from our sin nature, which Christ came to redeem. Hmm. Great. Thank you so much, Christopher. And I think I can uh, trust my feeling and thoughts when I say I'm really grateful and we're all really grateful that you came here, uh, shared with us, took some time out of your busy schedule to uh, spend time with our community. Let's thank him one last time.